Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. All right, Joe, we're recapping what was an excellent first week of college football. You know, a lot of times you'll have a really good slate of games, but not many of them live up to the hype. We had so many great tight games in this one. And we mentioned a couple of them in our locker room talk and the ones that happened in North Carolina with East Carolina and App State coming just this close to knocking off uh, big rivals in the state with NC State and uh, North Carolina. And there were a lot of games that were just like that, though, tight. And, Joe, the first one and the one that I think nationally is getting the most publicity, as it should, was the one that was the standalone game on Sunday night. And uh, it was a real rough opening for Brian Kelly. And, you know, you and I mentioned this when he first decided to take this job. Sometimes I think the grass is greener on the other side, but really it's not. You know, you think you're getting better athletes. Well, there's going to be better athletes. Uh, Guess what? They're probably they might not listen to you the same way. They might not have the same level of respect. You might not have the same discipline. And what we saw the other night was an excellent win for Florida State, one that I think was good for the health of college football. I mean, it's been so long since Florida State's been relevant. To see them get a win like that was excellent. I mean, last season, Florida State hosted Notre Dame at home, Brian Kelly, ironically, and Kelly was able to get that win against Florida State in overtime. And this time, of course, Florida State dominated the game for the entirety of the game pretty much. And then the last four minutes, suddenly Jaden Daniels came alive and LSU got the touchdown. Then after muffing the punt, they had that great stand where they, they, they caused a fumble for Florida State, driven 99 yards, got the touchdown. And then, of course, the blocked field goal, the blocked extra point happens after a field goal was blocked during the game. Florida State goes from sadness to jubilation. And, Joe, I got to say that I've seen football games before where you had the range of emotions. Like, I mean, I was at the kick six game. There was a lot of things going through my mind right before that field goal happened. I never in my wildest dreams thought the Alabama kicker would make it. I think every Auburn fan there was pretty secure in the fact that he wouldn't make it. But, of course, we didn't think the kick six was actually going to happen. We saw him go back there for it. But let me say that even with all the jubilation you saw with the kick sets, I don't think I've ever seen a fan base go from through the roof to sad to through the roof like so fast as, a, as you did the Florida State fan base. And then the exact opposite for the LSU fan bases, downtrodden. You're about to lose by multiple scores. Wait a minute, you have a chance. Touchdown. Oh, my God, we're about to go to overtime. And then, boom, loss. I mean, it, it was crazy. I don't think I've ever seen a game like that. I definitely haven't on that level, maybe on like the high school level in person, but not on that level. And the other unique thing about it, to your point, is that for Florida State, you rarely see a team kind of have a collapse like that and then have the jubilation at the end. Usually, if the momentum's going that way, you feel like the other team pulls it out. Like I kind of felt like as soon as um, LSU scored that touchdown, if they had made that extra point, I thought for sure they were going to win in overtime the way the the moment of momentum was going, but, you know, for Florida state, they pull it out. Um, it galvanizes. I think that program, Mike Norvell gets some momentum and, you know, on the flip side, if you're LSU, it starts out uh, really tough for uh, Brian Kelly. 
Absolutely, Joe. And before we get to Brian Kelly and what he's been dealing with this week ever since then, including being made fun of by people like me, um, I want to go into uh, what I thought was a great performance by Jordan Travis for Florida State. I mean, in that game, he made some really excellent plays, and he probably pulled off what may have been the best flea flicker I've ever seen. I don't think I've ever seen a flea flicker that looked that clean, that had that tight of a window to complete it, and there was a touchdown thrown. I mean, it was just a really well-designed play. Mm-hmm. Now, he's a great quarterback, and I think he's one of the emerging stars in the sport. And I kind of look at that, you know, kind of his coming out party in some ways. And the ironic thing about that game, you know, getting so much buzz without played out in the finish is that coming into the weekend last weekend, I kind of felt like with the exception of it being two Blue Bloods, that game was kind of largely an afterthought, or at least my interest level. You know, I didn't have a whole lot of interest in the, you know, players involved in the game. I guess the Brian Kelly storyline, it was interesting, but ironic, you know, that that game played out the way it did. Yeah, it was weird, Joe. I mean, you can definitely think of, you know, if this game had been 10 years ago when Les Miles really had LSU hop in, when Jimbo Fisher was, you know, what was at Florida State uh, right around the time they beat Auburn for the national championship, you definitely would have thought this would have been a battle of two top five teams playing out in the Superdome. And instead, you're seeing neither one of them ranked. And really for Florida State, it was kind of like a last gasp, I thought, for Mike Norvell. He needed this signature win to get the season going and maybe make it to where it's okay if he loses to Clemson. It's okay if maybe you lose this to NC State. Because right now, you know that Mike Norvell has one thought on his mind. It's the specter of Deion Sanders just sitting behind him right now. It's there. And I had to think, too, when I was watching that game, that the only person who may have been more upset about that field goal getting blocked, that that extra point getting blocked than Brian Kelly, was Deion Sanders sitting in Jackson, Mississippi right now, not being able to drink water, having trouble getting his players showers, using the bathroom and all this kind of stuff. And he just saw that epic collapse that Florida State had, and he's like, maybe they'll call me after this game is done. And then that's done. Yeah, yeah I mean, no, that, that's definitely a good point. Yeah, and, and I just I, I just saw that sitting there, and suddenly you could tell with Mike Norvell, so you could see the range of emotions he had. He was thinking about that. There's no doubt in my mind. And then that extra point gets blocked. Really great individual effort on that. And suddenly, you know, Florida State sitting there, they have a great win over a SEC power. Um, you know, they're in an ACC right now where Clemson looks really good, but who's that number two team? And with what we saw with Clemson, and, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later, it looks like Florida State, if they played their A game, could maybe hang with them. Yeah, it could be them. I'm also intrigued by Miami as well. But, yeah, I, I definitely think that Florida State, you know, it kind of salvages the tenure for Mike Norvell and maybe gets them on track this year. That's right, Joe, which I'm happy about. I mean, I've been to Tallahassee uh, before, and I thought it was a cool place. The campus is gorgeous. Their athletic facilities are incredible. Like, I really want to go to a game at Florida State. That's, like, high level on my list. And I want to see them be good again so I can experience the full chop, uh, you know, kind of like it was. I went to a Braves game over the weekend for my first time in Truist Park. And getting to experience the chop in person for the first time in so long was excellent. And, you know, I was just thinking to myself, too, when I was at the Braves game, like uh, how cool it would be to get to see that in Florida State when they're good. So it was cool to get to see that in the Superdome again, too. Right, 
Right. Um, but, you know, switch on the other side of this, Joe, what makes it worse for Brian Kelly, not just that it's a Florida State program that's, that's you know, that's been bad lately, that has been on the, the low down for five or six years, not just that he lost his first game, it's that he lost it in the Superdome. And that's a big deal. When you talk to LSU fans, that's a point of pride amongst them. We don't lose in the Super Bowl, in the Superdome. Every time we've ever won a national championship, it's been in the Superdome, which is true. All of their national championships they've won, you know, outside of the one with Billy Cannon back in the 1950s. I'm not talking about that. Their recent success, national championships, every single one of them they've won at the Sugar Bowl in the Superdome. So that's that's their place. I mean, it's in New Orleans. It's 45 minutes outside of Baton Rouge. And that's a home game for them. They've got like, you know, they, they've got voodoo magic working there. And you, you add in the fact that not only did Brian Kelly lose that game in the Superdome, he lost because of special teams. There's always been a thing about LSU where they win big games against good opponents because field goal kickers lose their minds against LSU because people drop balls. It happens over and over again. And for the first time ever, and I, I promise you, I've watched so many LSU games in my life. I've never seen them lose a game because of repeated special teams errors. And that's what I saw in this game. It was a missed extra point, a blocked extra point, a blocked field goal, a muff punt. I mean, I've never seen that before. And so you add all this in to Brian Kelly, you know, frankly, being someone that's not from the South, coming down, being in there. He loses the game in the Superdome. He also loses with something that LSU has been good at for forever. What an awful first game that was. Yeah, no, that was really tough for him for all the reasons that you stated. And, you know, I was on record, I think, kind of like you were from the beginning. I just never really thought it was a good hire as far as the fit. Um, You know, uh, I just think that I've had skepticism as far as with how the SEC is just so strong in the West. Yeah, Oklahoma and Texas, at some point, good coaches are going to have to lose by default. I mean, somebody's going to be a good team and go six and six or seven and five and be really, really good. And I think that um, for LSU, I'm afraid for their sake, Brian Kelly's going to kind of find him in that place, maybe where he has some good players. LSU has some talented teams, but they just can't win a lot of these close games. And, Joe, I mean, it goes to in the weirdness of the fit. Even you see the way he interacts with, with media. You know, it starts off with him having that ridiculous speech where he talks about me and my family – I haven't even won all my games yet. Having this little speech where he sounds like, you know, Falkhorn Leghorn out there trying to talk to, you know, Louisiana fans. He has a, he has an interview this week where he's opened up to the media and he like fake chastises a media member for showing up late to this uh, press conference. And he basically says something along the lines of he's going to find media, media members like $10 every time they're late. And he's going to have a party at their house. And uh, the media member like shoots back really fast. He's like, you know, uh, if you start winning some games, maybe I won't be late. <laughs> I mean, you know, after one game, he's getting mouthed at by media members locally. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I know the guys won, you know, and had a lot of success at multiple schools, even going back to like Central Michigan. And I know that LSU, you know, seems to have a track record of coaches, even if it's Ed Orgeron, you know, winning a national title. But I, I just have skepticism here, and maybe he proves me wrong, but I, I just don't see it right now. Well, Joe, I mean, I, I feel like outside of Nick Saban, 
the coaches that do well at LSU tend to be people that you can identify, the regular Louisianans can identify with. They're quirky. Maybe they're not from the South. Les Miles is not from the South, but he's quirky. And, you know, he's very likable. And they tend to get along well with him. Saban was just such a great coach, and he's kind of like separate from this, that he could get it done. But, I mean, if you're not at that level of coachdom, then you kind of have to have that folksiness to get along with Louisiana people, I think, to succeed with that job. Because that's the players you're going to coach. And I'm not saying that, you know, the players at Notre Dame are a better breed of people or anything like that, but it's a different kind of person that goes to Notre Dame than goes to LSU. I mean, that's the truth. And he's used to dealing with that. And it's going to take him a while to get adjusted to what he, to the kind of, the kind of person that he's coaching at LSU and the kind of backgrounds they're going to have versus what he had at Notre Dame. And frankly, it may take him too long. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know that he's got enough time to be able to get that there. And, you know, you think about it, Joe, I mean, maybe he decided in his mind he couldn't win a national championship in Notre Dame. I mean, obviously he did, right? But maybe one of the other jobs that were open should have been better for him. Maybe he should have pursued that USC job instead of Lincoln Raleigh. I think Lincoln Riley could have been successful at LSU. Maybe you should have tried to go get that Oklahoma job. I think both USC and Oklahoma might have been more better suited to a personality like Brian Kelly's than LSU would have been. Yeah, I think so. Or maybe, you know, a Big Ten job that were to open up. I mean, it just seems like to all the points that you stated, it's just not a, a great fit at LSU and, you know, Time will tell, but, you know, these days you don't have a whole lot of time. No, you don't. And right now he's the laughingstock of college football. And you say it's one game. Yeah, but it's one game on a big standalone stage. And like I said, being at the Superdome made it that much bigger. Right. And then, you know, to top it all off, you saw the frustration off LSU's first-team All-American wide receiver, Kayshawn Butte, throughout the game. I think he had like – 20 yards receiving on two catches after the game gets done he removes everything lsu from all of his social media now i haven't heard anything about him going in the transfer portal yet but the, if he were to lose Kayshawn booty in his first year that would be just truly terrible and just make the story even worse yeah with him being a third year player i think it'd be likely that he'd just set out the rest of the year if he just gets tired of it and declare for the draft when I heard all these weird rumblings about him possibly entering the transfer portal, I was like, in my mind, I'm like, Brian Harson needs to leave this Mercer game <laughs> and drive down to go to Louisiana to try and pick up Kayshawn Boussage. He's like, here, get him back in the car. We'll take you down here. We need a receiver right now. Yeah. I mean, he's no that good. So, I, Brian Kelly, you know, he needs to be able to satisfy a receiver like that, figure out some common ground. And that's going to be another thing he's not used to, too, is he's going to have to deal with the guys that are stars on this team. Might have some prima donna stuff to him that he's not used to at Notre Dame. And you're going to have to figure out how to break through to the to these kids in a way that you're not used to having to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Joe. Moving on to someone who had a great first weekend. So, of course, Brian Kelly had this awful opening game where he loses to Florida State on a miss extra on a blocked extra point. On the other side, Billy Napier, who I think, you know, people that knew college football thought that was a pretty good hire at Florida. 
maybe not the showstopper that a lot of Gators fans would have expected in terms of name recognition, but someone that when you looked at what he did at Louisiana Lafayette, very successful coach. I mean, remember we were talking about Auburn's coaching search before they hired Harson. I said I thought Billy Napier was a was a good look. Um, Billy Napier hosts number, you know, depending on the service, number five, number seven, Utah at the swamp for his first game. And what I thought was just a very well-played game all around, they win just a thriller by getting an interception with 17 seconds left. And I mean, the defense looked great. And more importantly, if you're a Florida fan, based on what you have, that specter of the Georgia Bulldogs and their amazing defense and they're on the other, on the other heart side of that division, uh, Anthony Richardson looks like a real star. He really does. And I think that having him makes a big difference and gives um, Napier a chance to have some early success. And then also just watching the game in the fourth quarter with the crowd getting into it, you know, a top 10 team coming in. I kind of felt like Napier had been there for several years. Like he did not feel new at all. He looked really comfortable in that role. I think he has a chance to really have a lot of success there. I think he does too, Joe. Um, you know, Florida's always been a sleeping giant. Like, you know, even when they're not good, you know they're not far from getting back to being good. The Swamp is an incredible environment. I told you about how difficult it is for teams, especially ones that are not used to that kind of atmosphere, to the heat, to go down there and play. The biggest concern I had for Utah was not their talent level, not their coaching ability, was how are they going to deal with the fact that they're playing in front of 90,000 fans that are really just angry and loud. And the fact that they have students sitting there right there behind them, probably saying things they've never heard from any fans before, especially not right there in their ear and having to deal with that Florida humidity at the end of the game after they've been playing for three hours. And you could see it, Joe, when it got kind of towards the end of the game, they started to get a little tired. You could tell, especially on the defensive side of it. And, you know, definitely a tough road trip for them. But yet again, it looks like the biggest chance that the Pac-12 had to make the college football playoff might already be done. It looks like disappeared pretty quickly. It was really the worst, uh, you know, scenario for Utah, you know, as a Pac-12 favorite college football playoff, you know, fringe contender to go into that type of environment to open the season, kind of like eliminates them before, you know, an opportunity really arises. Well, Joe, and I think what's even worse for him, too, is I think if you had played this game in the middle of the season, you play this game in October, early November, I think Utah wins this game. But when you add in the heat that you have in Florida and the very beginning of September, uh, you know, with it being the very first game for a coach, he hadn't lost yet, the fans' excitement, that was a rough spot to put Utah in. I mean, conversely, you could have put him in maybe an environment against a better SEC team right now Maybe they would have won. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, you think maybe if you send them to Knoxville right now, it's not going to be quite as hot. Maybe they'd win that. Maybe you send them to Ole Miss even, like they'd have a good chance to win that game right now. Or Kentucky. These are all teams that on paper are better than Florida is. But that environment this early in the season with that first game was a real – I mean, outside of maybe playing an Alabama or a Georgia at home – might have been the scariest road trip Utah could have had. Yeah, it, it was really tough for them, you know, and, and they almost, you know, still won. But, yeah, just a lot that they were up against. It was. And, and you know, going – the way they responded at the end of that game, 
Anthony Richardson does the superstar move, that two point conversion where he does the uh, he does the fake uh, pump fake in the air, jumps, spins, gets out of the traffic, and then throws to the wide open receiver, get the two point conversion, Sports Center stuff. But Utah responds well; they have a good drive. And I would love – I haven't listened to any kind of interview from Cam Rising, but I would love to see what was he doing on that interception because that's a coaching thing to me. Why would you throw it into double coverage when you have 17 seconds left? You don't even need a touchdown. Technically, you can kick a field goal and go to overtime. you got a better football team. You should win in overtime. And I just thought that was a terrible play call, and it just made me think of the, the Seattle Seahawks um, – New England Patriots Super Bowl where Russell Wilson threw an interception when all they had to do was run it in for a touchdown. I mean, they had 17 seconds. They could have done a running play. And in my mind, why would you do anything but throw passes to the back of the end zone to where the worst thing that happens is it gets knocked out of bounds and kick your field goal. I just thought that was poor coaching. Yeah, it really was. And it's a good parallel with the uh, Patriots Seahawks um, analogy. Um, Another thing I just didn't understand that kind of irked me a little bit is obviously, you know, the replay showed after the game that it was an interception, but I didn't understand at the time why that wasn't reviewed. I mean, normally, like, a game-ending interception like that is looked at from, like, five different angles, and it's like everybody just assumed that he caught it because I thought it was a little bit close from the naked eye. Hmm. That, that maybe wasn't something that I was looking at, Joe, and I can be honest. Like, when I saw that happen, I immediately switched to Notre Dame and Ohio State. That was kind of like, you know – the way that yeah, looked, they it, didn't they didn't show they didn't show the replay at all like until i hmm. think the clock hit zero they never showed the replay of the interception that's very interesting well joe uh you know moving away from that i thought billy napier has you know done a great job uh in his first game he's showing that his style which is i don't know if you've looked at florida's like coaching staff but they've got like the biggest coaching staff in america right now like billy napier's got a coach for everything you could think assistant to the water boy, um, middle linebacker envoy coach. Like it's, it's like you, you go down the list and if you could think of some kind of ridiculous position you could have on a football field, he's got it. But I mean, apparently that's something he learned from Nick Saban is having these huge staffs. And after one week, them uh, getting a top, you know, top 10 win in this first game, can't say that it doesn't work apparently. Yeah, and he gets, you know, those uh, like saving comparisons as far as like being a similar, you know, mindset and strategy. That's right. Well, you know, he's got a big one coming up this week that we'll talk about in our next episode of when they take on Kentucky, but definitely a great start for him. Uh, Joe, the best start in America happened where I was at in Atlanta. Of course, I was in Atlanta this weekend for a Braves game, but at the same time I was there, they had the uh, Georgia-Oregon game taking place in the Georgia Dome. And, uh, you know, you and I talked about this. I thought that it was going to be maybe a 17-point game, somewhere in the 14- to 17-point range. I really did think Oregon was going to come out and play him tight for a little bit, and I thought maybe Georgia's new faces would have a little bit of trouble. And, you know, I remember seeing Oregon a couple years ago, and I thought that on an offensive and a defensive line standpoint, they tended to, to match up pretty well with SEC teams. What I didn't – well, I underestimated, Joe, and what I didn't understand is just how much of a machine this Georgia thing is right now. Uh, he loses 15 players to the draft. I, I mean, they looked better than they did last year, which is horrifying. 
And what's even worse, Joe, is not only was their defense still this dance team of destruction to where they just made Bo Life's Bo Nix's life a living hell like they did for three years at Auburn, it was that Stetson Bennett suddenly looked like a real quarterback, not a game manager, not someone who gets voted the MVP of the national championship game after he tried to olay the ball to Alabama to let them get another national championship. I mean, you know, Stetson Bennett was a liability last year. You can sit here and talk to me about how great he was, how great of a story it is. It is a great story. But the bottom line is, you know, he was the reason that Georgia was close to not winning a national championship. This year, he went against a good Oregon defense, and he was excellent. He had the highest passer rating, the highest QBR of any quarterback in America. And that's horrifying, Joe, because that was the only reason that you even had a thought in your mind you could hang with Georgia last year. And suddenly, Stetson Bennett looks like a top-five quarterback in the nation. Yeah, he really does. I mean, just blown away by how uh, Todd Munkin has that offense going with Bennett. And then, you know, on the other side, the defense being better than we could have imagined. And that was my ultimate takeaway from the game. I was like, you know, we're going to hear the criticism about Oregon and I definitely think that Georgia was significantly better than Oregon. But my ultimate takeaway is I don't think Oregon's that bad as the score indicates. I came away thinking Georgia's just that good this year again. That, that's exactly where I was at, Joe. I mean, uh, you know, when I was in Atlanta, I saw all kinds of Oregon fans. And, of course, being an Auburn fan, I talked to them, you know, a lot and going in. And they were, you know, they were not cautiously optimistic. I wouldn't say that. But they didn't go in thinking they were about to see that. And I just – I felt so bad for Oregon fans because, you know, I know what the trip was like for my dad and I to go to Dallas to watch that Auburn-Oregon game for the opening week. And I can only imagine how much money those fans had to spend to go to this game, to go to the new Mercedes-Benz, Georgia Dome, to stay in Atlanta for a few days, to go and just watch in a complete and utter obliteration and destruction of all of their hopes and dreams of the season – and for them thinking in their minds, how did Bo Nix beat us <laughs> three years ago? We still don't understand where this came from, that he could do that when we had Justin Herbert, and yet he goes out here and lays this massive egg against Georgia. Yeah, and especially with the point we were talking about last week where Chris Ball and others saying this was the best maybe Oregon team they had had in like a while. Yeah, I mean, Chris Ball said he thought this was a better Oregon team than what he had with Justin Herbert. Now, you know, early returns would say he was dead wrong about that. Um, but, you know, like, like you said, it could just be that Georgia is really that good. And with Stetson Bennett taking that next step, that's the scary part to me because you look at what Georgia has, and, yeah, they lost burden to Alabama. But when it comes to tight ends, I don't know that I've ever seen a team that has as good of tight ends as that. Brock Bowers, Darnell Washington looks like an absolute monster. And then their third best tight end, oh, yeah, Eric Gilbert, who was at LSU and who was the number one player in America coming out of high school. That's their number three tight end. Uh, Adonai Mitchell still looks really good. And so suddenly, you know, Georgia, they might be a team that throws the ball a little bit more than they run it this year. And it's just a hard thing to imagine. But right now it looks like the passing offense is the strength of Georgia's team. It really looks that way. And to your point about the tight ends, like they look like they have NFL-ready tight ends already. They do. I mean, they have three of them that are going to play on Sundays. And, Joe, when you want to look at the programs in the NFL who have dominated the most, 
over the last 10 years, who's it been? It's been the Patriots and the Chiefs. And what are the mainstays of the Patriots and the Chiefs passing game? And you can add the Bucks in there too. It's called tight end play. I mean, you got Gronkowski doing everything, Travis Kelsey. And the teams that are really good, that's what they focus on in the passing game now. And Georgia now has tight ends that are leaps and bounds over anyone else in America. And guess what? I mean, those are matchup nightmares, and you can exploit that. And it makes Stetson Bennett's job a lot easier. Yeah, no, it really does. And, you know, I had concerns about who was going to step up as the receiver, you know, from a wide receiver standpoint for Georgia. But it looks like they kind of have that problem solved really through the uh, tight ends who are so versatile. But they don't need them. They don't need wide receivers, Joe. They have, they have tight ends that are just excellent. Um, and Joe, you know, going from this game, which was, you know, coronation showing that George is here to stay. Let's look at two games that happened on the same night that were both really tight. that kind of had controversial endings. And that was the Penn state Purdue game and the backyard brawl with, uh, with Pittsburgh and West Virginia. And what I thought was interesting about both these games, the teams that were favored ultimately won. But the teams that were kind of the underdogs that we knew would, would give them tight both had catches that were initially called catches overturned at the end of the game where I thought that neither one of them had indisputable video evidence to overturn it. And I thought the one uh, – both of them were ones that I would not have overturned if I were official. The one in the um, – I didn't see the, the Purdue um, one uh, against um, Penn State. The one in uh, – Pittsburgh um, against uh, West Virginia. I could kind of see where they could overturn it, but when it happened, I kind of felt like they were going to uphold it based on how it, it was looking. Like I, I, I was a little bit surprised they did overturn it, but I was like, my, my gut told me that was that probably hit the ground. Yeah, it was one that I definitely think it was probably you know was incomplete, but I didn't think it was indisputable evidence to overturn it. And see, so, yeah, those are two different things right there. Um, the one in the Purdue game was worse though, because I definitely, I actually did think that was a catch hundred percent. I think even, I think, I think even if you, if you were to look at it objectively, I thought it was a catch, not just overturning it with whether there was indisputable evidence. Um, yeah. the, the biggest takeaway I had from that game though, from the Penn state Purdue game was that Sean Clifford is one of the best ugly quarterbacks I've ever seen. He's just a gamer. And a lot of people hate on him. They try to compare him to Bo Nix. He's a much better quarterback than Bo Nix. I saw Sean Clifford in person last year, and he was the reason that Penn State beat Auburn. He, he was very excellent. He uh, got rid of the football timely. And weirdly in this game against Purdue, his stat line was very strange. Like, I think he was under 50% passing, and he had an interception, but he also had 300 yards passing and four touchdowns. And the very end of the game, that last drive that he led, one of the best drives I've ever seen to go out and win that game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that no, was really, really impressive. And he kind of has that pressure, you know, that we'll talk about in a minute with DJ and Clemson. He's got a five-star quarterback, I think, on their roster waiting in the wings. And so, you know, he comes out and performs, you know, well. And I think that that, that definitely is uh, good, you know, for his starting uh, potential. That's right, Joe. Uh, you know, and going on the other side, of course, Aiden O'Connell for Purdue yet again looks great. And I think that's a good sleeper quarterback that a team should consider drafting if they can get him in the second or third round this year. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, you know, going back to the West Virginia game, I thought Keaton Slovis had a pretty good uh, opening game. I thought really Pittsburgh showed a lot of ability to run the football. And on the other side, West Virginia, I thought JT Daniels looked very good. And 
you know, I was watching the, the this game with a friend of the show, Kyle, who's a big Georgia fan. And we kept making, we kept joking about every time we saw JT Daniels get hit, we're like, well, that's it. He's Mr. Glass. He's, he's going to be done. But he took some vicious hits in that game, was able to keep playing. So I hope we get to see more JT Daniels this year. And it's not going to be another thing like it was in the past where he plays two brilliant games for Georgia and then gets some weird phantom injury and is out the rest of the season. Yeah, we definitely like to see more of him, and uh, you know, it was a great to have this uh, this rivalry back. And I thought, you know, it, it took center stage, and rightfully so. It did. I, I was very happy to see that too. Um, a funny story that's trending on the internet. Speaking of this rivalry, you know, Neil Brown at West Virginia has not gotten off the best start. Uh, things have been a little stale there. Not a whole lot on the offensive side of it. Apparently, Jimbo Fisher was asked some question during a, uh, a post-game interview after Texas A&M, and he said, of course I would always listen if West Virginia wanted me to be their head coach because West Virginia is home after all, and that's just like blown up all over the internet. Like, could Jimbo possibly go to West Virginia? Of course, I don't believe that is a story in the least, but maybe that gives Mountaineers fans some hope because Jimbo Fisher, like Nick Saban, is from West Virginia. That's true. All right, Joe. Um, Moving on to the game of the weekend, that was Ohio State and Notre Dame. Uh, probably not what a lot of people expected. Definitely not what I expected. With Ohio State's prolific offense, I thought that Marcus Freeman's defense would do a, a good job at shutting him down. But I didn't think there was any way they'd hold him at 21 points. Uh, you know, it, I don't know what's, what's more of the story. Was it Notre Dame's defense holding Ohio State to 21 or was it Jim Knowles's revamped Ohio State defense only giving up 10 points? I thought in a lot of ways, maybe this was exactly the kind of game that Ohio State needed to show that, yes, they have the stellar offense. They have this bevy of talent from C.J. Stroud to Jackson Smith and Jigba to Marvin Harrison's son to Travion Henderson to Mayan, uh, Mayan Williams. But guess what? They can beat you with defense too. Yeah, it definitely uh, displays their versatility in order to win games in multiple ways. I think, you know, the important things they won, which I do have, you know, lingering questions, hoping that the receivers are okay. You know, Smith, the Jigma, um, you know, had to lead the game, didn't have the impact we would have expected. And then also uh, Julian Fleming, a former uh, five-star on the depth chart. I don't even think he got to play in the game uh, due to injury. And so concerned about, you know, making sure their health is okay because, they are going to need, you know, that passing offense to come to fruition as the season moves on. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I mean, I think you're probably going to see a little bit more of an emphasis on the run game in the coming weeks. Um, But I got to say, you know, if you're a Notre Dame fan right now, after getting jilted by Brian Kelly, you should probably be pretty happy with the opening game for Marcus Freeman. I mean, it wasn't embarrassing in any way. The only thing that I would be concerned about if I was a Notre Dame fan is, you know, where are you at with – the kind of talent you have on offense because it really looks like right now that outside of Michael Meyer, they have a very, very poor offense. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I've heard um, at least one uh, Notre Dame uh, beat writer talk about in the last few months is the fact that, you know, since the days of like a golden Tate and other receivers, you have not seen like those impactful receivers recruited by Notre Dame. And that's the position that they've struggled at. Yeah, it is Joe. I mean, uh, they have what the guy that played for the the Steelers. Um, I can't think of his name right now. He came out a oh, few I know years exactly ago. who you're talking about. Yeah, he's a good wide receiver. Um, and then they had the dude that, that played for the Texans for a long time was also an Notre Dame wide receiver. Oh, 
Chase Claypool's the guy with the, the Steelers. Chase Claypool's the one I'm thinking of. But that was about four years ago, and that's the last time I remember Notre Dame really having a star wide receiver. Um, and then, of course, uh, I think they had Equinemius St. Brown, too. Equinemius St. Brown was a good wide receiver, not a great one. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, show-stopping wide receivers, it, it's been a while. Yeah, and they don't, like, have one every other year. It seems like it's every, like, four or five years. So, just they're just not as consistent. Yeah, that's definitely a uh, recruiting place they need to pick up. But supposedly one of the good things about Marcus Freeman is that he's a solid recruiter. His defense definitely seems to be in order. It's just going to be whether or not he can get that offense going. Absolutely. Joe, speaking of getting the offense going and having your defense in order, Clemson played on Monday night, and it was about exactly what all of us expected. Their defense still looks salty. You know, a lot of talent on that D-line and that front seven. But yet again, uh, DJ Uyangagale not looking great, and I've got a concern that maybe we're about to see what happened in 2018 and four games in the freshman's going to come in, you know, this time DJ is like Kelly Bryant and Cade Klubnick, the freshman uh, quarterback is a lot like Trevor Lawrence. Maybe if you're a Clemson fan, you look at this as a sign as you're going to win the national championship this year. It could be. I mean, that, that's cert- certainly, certainly a compelling point. Um, you know, I told you, you know, repeatedly the last few weeks that, you know, I heard the criticism about Clemson, you know, kind of like being an afterthought um, compared to some of the other kind of like, quote unquote, real challengers like Georgia, Alabama and Ohio State. But I still think, you know, that Clemson deserves to be, you know, in that stratosphere as a top competitor. But they've got to get their offense going to your point if they're going to see, you know, uh, that type of success at the end of the year. And it may start with making a quarterback change. The tricky thing and the puzzling thing with DJ is it's so mysterious how it's played out last year and then the first game this year, the first half this year, because you think back to the two games that he played in Trevor Lawrence's place in 2000. Yeah, he was excellent. Like you thought this was like the the coming of a star quarterback. Like, I I don't know. Like it's almost like um, he kind of disappears, kind of like that that quarterback that had all the hype at Texas after Colt McCoy – Garrett, I uh, can't remember. Garrett Gilbert. Remember yeah, and he just never quite panned out either. Yeah, this is a little bit like that because, I mean, I thought DJ Uyangaway was the next star at, uh, at Clemson. You know, you had you went from Deshaun Watson to, uh, you know, a little bit of a break with Kelly Bryant and then right to uh, Trevor Lawrence. I thought he was the next coming. But it looks like he's got himself a lot of work to do. Uh, but, like, you know, if you're a Clemson fan, still really good uh, defense and that can get you championship. Uh, when yeah. we come back, we're going to look at next week's games, especially a big one down in the swamp. Uh, you can catch all of our episodes on Spotify. Of course, you can also uh, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at DJ Sports Show. And, of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, the Dan Joe Sports Show YouTube channel. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.